Well, last week in the shorter catechism study, we got to question 20. And this question introduces us, as we saw, to a new topic, a very important topic in the catechism, the covenant of grace. In this section, we're going to be learning about the covenant that God established to save us. Today, many people are unable to appreciate God's gracious covenant of salvation because they have a shallowness about their need of salvation. Hopefully, we're not like that. We've talked about that being a problem. We we spent quite a few weeks looking at the question, the catechism, the questions that speak of the fall and its consequences showing us how much we need God's salvation. So with question 17, we saw that the fall brought us all into an estate of sin and misery. And what that means is that we're now natural-born sinners who are brought under God's wrath and curse. Okay, being under his wrath and curse, that's the misery that we have. That's where we have the curse, all the problems in the world, and the uh, future curse that's coming of hell if we are not saved. And then uh, we're also the natural born sinner part that we naturally sin. We, we have original sin and we add to our, our, the guilt of that by sins that we commit every day. But it was very refreshing to get to question 20 last week because uh, it, it tells us of God's salvation. Let's, let's confess that question together. Question 20, did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? God having out of his myriad pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. How powerful the gospel is. As I showed you last week, God determined from before the foundation of the world to save the elect. God's electing grace is our only hope. We were helpless. There was nothing that we could do to turn away God's wrath due to our sin. And there was nothing that we could do to turn our hearts of rebellion to him. We were blind and dead and unwilling to come to God in our transgressions and sins. But salvation came because He decided, His grace. It was, it, it was His initiative, and it was His act. We simply respond to the call, which makes us alive. Last week, we also zeroed in on what God does to save us. We saw that His way of salvation, the covenant of grace, is to gather all things in Jesus Christ. Remember we looked at that in Ephesians? For the wicked, this means they're casting away. Okay, when they're gathered into Christ, when the wicked is gathered to Christ without repentance, it, it means that they are cast away. But for the elect and for the creation itself, the world, the created things, it means redemption. We looked at how God through the ages has continually gathered his people to Christ for the twofold purpose of changing their sinful hearts 
so that they might serve him willingly. They might become people that desire to do the will of God. And the second purpose, for atoning for their sins through the blood of Christ. Now, as we move along in the catechism, the next question, question 21, draws us to focus on who the Redeemer is that brought those blessings to us. It tells us that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. It stresses that he is the only Redeemer. And it tells us what makes him so unique as the only one that could be our Redeemer, that he is both God and man in one person. Only one with that characteristic. So let's recite the question together. Question 21, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be, God and man, in two distinct natures, and one person forever. The scripture reading that I've chosen to go along with this is Acts 4, 1 through 12. In this passage, the uniqueness of Christ is emphasized that He is the only Redeemer. It is asserted that He is the only Redeemer by the Apostle Peter when he preaches to Israel's rebellious leaders who had rejected Him. They of all people needed to know that there was no other salvation anywhere but in the Lord Jesus Christ. So please listen as I read this powerful passage to you. It is from God's holy word. Acts 4, beginning in verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in the name and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they got arrested for preaching about Jesus. This is uh, Peter and John in verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? And I just pause here for a minute. Reminds you of Mark, doesn't it? What did they ask Jesus? By what power or what name have you done this? And then uh, look what Peter says, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. <laughs> Just another comment. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? That these, these leaders, they had just shortly before this asked the same question to Jesus, and he had told them that he was going, that they were, that they were going to reject him and that he would be made the, the chief cornerstone, that God would raise him up. 
And here it has been fulfilled and Peter is testifying. And this is just a few weeks after that had happened. So it's, a, it's really quite a marvelous thing here that we see. And it, so Peter refers to that verse that Jesus referred to from Psalm 118. It goes on with verse 11. He says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And here's our key verse, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May God add His blessing to the reading of His holy and infallible Word. I want to begin this afternoon by asserting what we just heard Peter assert. Jesus Christ is the only Redeemer of God's elect. There's no other name. Look again at Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. God has made Jesus of Nazareth Redeemer, and there's no other. We read that in Isaiah. That there's one Savior. There's no other. It's God Himself is Savior. This text excludes all other ways when it says nor is there salvation in any other. It's very popular today that people want to have other ways of salvation that are just as good as this way. We have looked at before at what it is you need to be saved from. It's not just loneliness or poverty or oppression or inadequacy or self-hatred or guilt feeling or whatever else you might want to be saved from. I don't say that all of those things are necessarily excluded, but the problem goes much deeper than any of those things that you might feel you need to be saved from. It is the terrible condition that was brought on by the fall. Sin, with its corruption and guilt and misery, the result of God's judgment. God alone has a solution to that problem. All through the Bible, God is concerned to make known to His elect that His way of salvation is the only way of salvation. It's very, very important, emphasized in Scripture. Thus it was revealed to Cain and Abel. Cain offered a sacrifice to God without trusting in God's way. And he was rejected. He didn't have faith. But Abel offered his sacrifice looking to God for his acceptance. And he was accepted. There must be a sacrifice offered in faith. God will not accept the work of man's hands. God's way is the only way. Thus it was revealed to, with Noah. The ark. And nothing else would do. The people that weren't on the ark were not saved. The ark represented Christ. The place we go for salvation. You must come to Christ alone. He is the only refuge from judgment. Otherwise, you perish in the flood of God's wrath. God's way is the only way. Thus it was revealed with Abraham versus the Tower of Babel. The men at Babel tried to make an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, but they could not do it on their own. They could not redeem themselves. They tried to make a tower that reached up to heaven where they could connect with the gods. Man continues to this day to find, try to find his own salvation. But God promised 
that he would make Abraham into a kingdom of righteousness. They wouldn't do it themselves. Abraham wouldn't do it himself. God would do it. Salvation was from him. That he would do the redeeming. And that Abraham was to do the believing and the trusting. And that's the opposite. It's always what man can do to be saved versus God saying, no, I alone am the Savior. It's my Son, God's Son. God's way is the only way. So it was revealed with Moses and the law. The only way to approach Jehovah was through the mediation He appointed. The appointed sacrifices at the central sanctuary. God was so intense about this. He said, don't offer sacrifices anywhere else but at the place that I have appointed. And if they did, they were to be rejected and cut off. They did it. They did it all the time. They worshipped to the high places and offered sacrifices contrary to God's God's command. All other ways, though, were strictly forbidden and unacceptable, all to show that there is only one salvation by that which pointed to Jesus Christ, not whatever altar you build, wherever it might be. So God's way is the only way. Thus, it was also revealed through David that one of his sons would bring eternal salvation, not Multiple sons, but one son. Not David himself, but one of his sons. Not even David would reign forever, but one of David's sons. David called this son Lord because he was the true king that would bring peace so that God might dwell among his people. He would be the only redeemer of God's elect, and now he is the only redeemer. God's way is the only way. Thus it was also revealed in the new covenant that all would know the Lord and that He would save them by a substitutionary death. Jeremiah 31, 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The Lord Himself would save them so that we would know Him. He is, the Lord Himself, is the servant of Isaiah 53, by whose stripes we are healed. We know Him because He came among us and He died for us. God made Himself known, so in the new covenant He is known. Once we know Him, we cannot fathom any other way of salvation. It gives us security and hope. And indeed, God's way then is the only way we see again. And thus did Jesus come and de- declare to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only Redeemer of God's elect. There is no other way but this way to the Father. My son uh, Nathan had a class not long ago where and it, and it was a lot of... Um, fairly conservative Christian people, you might say, that were in the class. And it was, a, it was a great books class, and they were looking at different things in history, and a big discussion came up about whether the, the pagans and the, the Greeks and different ones that they were reading about, Plato, Aristotle, different ones, could, did they have salvation? Did they have, were some of them saved through the light of nature, or whatever? And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was very discouraging and disheartening for to hear people who profess to be Christians saying that, 
oh, you know, maybe there's other ways to be saved besides Jesus, or maybe somehow it's through Jesus, even though they don't have actual faith in Jesus. But there's no salvation in any other name. God doesn't save people without them knowing about it. He saves people through faith. The only people that He would save, you might say that He saves without them knowing about it in a certain way would be our, our little children who are not yet old enough to profess. But uh, when we're old enough to understand, God brings the gospel to us when He saves us. God's way then is the only way. And we must not ever allow there to be other ways because it dishonors our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though God has made this clear, the human heart wants another way. The legalist wants to keep all the rules to be saved. He reads the law superficially and concludes from God's commandments, all these I have kept from my youth up. Yet the law was given for the opposite reason, to be a mirror and to show us how short we come. Not so that we could say, oh yeah, I, I did all that. Um, not so that we could pretend to justify ourselves by works, but so that we might be found guilty. And us being found guilty, so is all the world guilty before God, as it says in Romans 3. So the way of the legalist is to dream that he can keep the rules of God. Then there is the ceremonialist. The ceremonialist wants to perform all the ceremonies to be redeemed. Today he says, I was baptized and I say my prayers and go to church. Or he says, I walked an aisle when the evangelist came and I prayed a prayer, got down on my knees and prayed a prayer. Or I joined the church, he says. It's something that I did, some ritual that I did or something that saves me. Now, those things are not bad. Baptism is not a bad thing. Prayer is not a bad thing. Um, even uh, coming to call on the name of the Lord or joining the church, those are all important things. But salvation is in Christ, faith in Him. It is not the mere performance of ceremonies that saves. All the ceremonies that God appointed, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are designed to point us to Christ as the only way. The ceremonialist rests in the sign instead of in the thing signified. Like the guy I've told you about who sees a sign when he's hungry, driving down the road, he sees a sign from McDonald's and, he, and uh, he goes and gazes at the sign. And he wants to be nourished by gazing at the sign. And uh, the sign is designed to point him to the food, which is Jesus Christ. Receiving Christ, not just the sign. The washing with water at baptism does not save you unless you look to Christ to whom baptism points. Christ who washes you from your sins by His blood and Spirit. Trusting in ceremonies then, that's the way of the ceremonialist. Then there are those who try to find salvation in things that don't even directly have to do with God or His worship. Maybe... Someone, you see people all the time, try to make government there to be their Messiah. Sometimes focusing on education. If we educate the people, we will be saved, we will make good citizens, we all have a utopia. That's what they said back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, all those guys like Paul and Dewey, different ones they talked about. They used biblical terms like the kingdom and all this kind of stuff. We're going to bring a kingdom in and there's going to be universal harmony and peace and all this sort of thing. And uh, it hasn't really worked very well, has it? 
we still see a lot of hostility in the world. It, it, we've been doing it for a long time. Sometimes it's focusing on welfare. If we overcome poverty, then we will be saved. Crime will cease. Everyone will be happy. Wars will cease. It doesn't happen. We're one of the most prosperous places in the earth. And there's still plenty of crime. People have enough to eat. Say, oh, if they just had their needs met. Well, most people in, this, in our land do have enough to eat. Sometimes focusing on military power. If we conquer the world, we overcome all the other nations and we're in charge. It might not be such a beautiful place as you think if you're in charge. Sometimes focusing on medicine to save. We can conquer sickness and death. We can cure people of bad behavior with medication. We give them the right medications and then they won't misbehave anymore. Well, I suppose that's true if you put them completely out. <laughs> they won't be able to misbehave. But it's not really a solution. And so as everyone is wandering from this to that, looking for salvation, then the fool comes along. And he sees all these who are concerned about salvation. But he has another approach. And there's a lot of fools around today. Um, the, the fool simply says, salvation from what? Why, why do we need to worry about that? He denies that there's any real need of salvation. He'll lose himself in laughter and diversion, various kinds. Maybe any kind of... He may be a guy that works really, really hard and achieves great things. He completely ignores his need of salvation and, and of God. Or he may be a guy that you know goes out and gets drunk all the time and parties all the time and doesn't ever... He's in and out of jail and different things. He could be anything like that. But it's the same thing. He, he's just saying, no God. You know, he's, he's ignoring God. His salvation, the way he finds peace, is to deny that he needs salvation. Not a good solution. So the human heart is full of false paths and methods of salvation. But Acts 4.12 cuts across all of this. It says, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The idea is that this name is given to us. It's given among men, among people. That, and that we must take this name. Now, the Bible talks about taking God's name in vain. That's when you take God's name as if it's empty, worthless. Well, well there are all these other options that we talked about, but they all fail. This is the way that, that does not fail. If you would be saved, you must use this way. It's the way that God is given. The word must is a word of absolute necessity. Whereby we must be saved. You must take this way. You must come to Jesus. Or you simply will not be saved. You must look to Him the way Israel looked to the serpent in the wilderness. Do you remember that story? People were bitten by poisonous snakes as a judgment from God in the wilderness. And God took, told Moses to make a brass serpent and put it up on a pole. And then He told the people to look, look at it when they were bitten and that they would live. That's all they had to do. Just look at it. And they thought, oh, that's not going to work. Well, then you die. Uh, that, but that's all they had to do. Look to the provision that God has made. We turn our eyes to the only name who's represented by that serpent by which we must be saved. We look to Him for salvation. Save me, Lord. Jesus is the only way. At the end of Mark's Gospel, it says, 
And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus is the only way we have an obligation to get the message out. There is no other name by which we must be saved. But now, let's shift gears a little bit, having established that this is a thing emphasized, very important in Scripture. What is it that makes Jesus so unique? The first thing that makes Jesus particularly unique is simply that God has chosen him. Did you know that Jesus is elect? He is the elect of the elect. Augustine referred to him as the highest example of predestination. We talk about the election of Israel and the election of the people in the church, but Jesus is the chosen one, the elect of God. In Isaiah 42.1, God the Father speaks of him like this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, that's the anointing, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, to the nations of the earth. God chose His Son to be our Savior, and God's choice of Him is final. He didn't consult with us first. It was God's choice. He didn't say, no, you need the guy to choose. No, it was God's doing. He didn't get the idea from us. It was His choosing even before the world was made. Surely you can see how foolish it is for us to try to choose Someone else is the way of salvation or something else when this is what God has chosen. But it's not only that God appointed him to be the only redeemer. It is also that he, he is unique and that he came in the fullness of time. In wisdom, God prepared the way through the Old Testament law and the ceremonies and things that they had. He showed us our need of Christ and our helplessness to deliver ourselves, our inability to obey, our need of atonement, the failure of our leaders. Doesn't that all come out in Israel's history? Like, nobody else is able to really lead them. To, even, even David, man after God's own heart. There were massive failures that, that, that ruined everything. And how, do we, how did they get themselves out of Egypt? Just by God's hand. They couldn't do it. Over and over, the whole Old Testament, all the sacrifices. It's not what you present, it's what God gives for, for, for atonement. But so, so all of this was, um, was set up in the Old Testament. And uh, if Christ had come before all that revelation, it would have been at the right time. Nobody would have known what it meant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What, what is that? They would have had no idea. But at the right time, Jesus came. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We were ready. God had prepared His people. And the world was ready. So that when the gospel went out to the world, it did its work. So he was unique then, we've seen, because he was the one that was chosen by God. 
presence. He's unique in that He came at the right time, at the fullness of time. He was also unique in that He was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. John 3.34 says, For He whom God has sent speaks the Word of God, words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. He's called the Christ. Remember that word means the anointed one? Why? Because He's anointed with the Holy Spirit to carry out the work. He would not, as in His human flesh, have been able to prophesy and do all of those things if He had not had the Spirit. So He did His work as prophet, priest, and king. The Spirit furnished Him with all that He needed to carry out His work as a man. No man is complete without the Holy Spirit. So to be a complete person before God, you have to have the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, God has uniquely qualified Him to be our Redeemer by giving Him two natures. It's interesting, I chose uh, Psalm 40 and uh, one of you chose as well to sing the portion in both cases where it talks about Him uh, being prepared, given a body to come and do His work. Jesus is unique because He has two natures. He is one person with two natures. He is both God and man at the same time. This is hard to understand, but it is clearly revealed in God's Word. Let me see if I can explain this to you. First, that He is one person. When we say that He is one person, we mean that there is only one I. You know, we say I, I am, or I will go, or whatever. uh, When He speaks, He says, I will come, or I will do this. When He speaks that way, there's only one I who's speaking. There's not two different I's. In other words, it's the same person who, who spoke of the glory that I had with the Father before the world was. In John 17, 5. It wasn't two different eyes. It was one eye. Who said, I thirst when He was on the cross. It was the same person who is the Son of God and who is human flesh. That eye was the one who said, I thirst. It was the same person who created all things by the word of His power. Who was also laid in a manger 2,000 years ago and fed at his mother's breast. One eye did that. It was the same person who tormented the nation of Egypt with multiple plagues. That was Christ, who was carried by his stepfather to Egypt to save him from a petty underling king in Israel who would have killed him. What a contrast. He brings the plagues on Egypt. Same eye is carried by his parents for safety in Egypt. It was the same person who made Israel tremble in the wilderness when he thundered forth the commandments from Mount Sinai that the people of Nazareth tried to push off a cliff when he went there, being it was his hometown. There is only one person. But this one person has two natures. Of course, I've just drawn that out somewhat with those illustrations. He has the divine nature which is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth, how we define God. 
He has the human nature which is created in the image of God, which was formed out of the dust of the ground. He's made of that substance. And that human nature being created is finite, temporal, and changeable. He has both those natures at the same time, one person. And through the Bible, he shows that he is Jehovah or Yahweh, the self-existing one, the divine one who is uncreated. He shows that he is Jehovah by his declaration in John 5.17, that he has been working alongside the Father forever. It was for this that the Jews sought to stone him because they understood that in saying that he made himself equal with God. He shows that he is Jehovah in the Bible by claiming that he is equal with the Father and so to be honored and worshipped as the Father's worship. He says this in John 5.23 and he gladly receives worship whenever it was given to him. He shows that he is Jehovah by revealing his authority over nature and even over death, raising the dead not in another name but in his own name. When Peter and John did the miracle that we read about in Acts um, a minute ago, it was uh, um, in the name of Jesus. Jesus did it in His own name. By revealing His power to forgive sin, He showed that He was God when He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins be forgiven you. By His authority to teach in His own name when He says in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, giving the final word and correcting all the wrong interpretations. By His authority to judge the nations, He showed that He was uh, God, as, as we're told repeatedly that He is going to come to judge the world, we're told that He will judge the secrets of every heart. Only God can render judgment like that. No one else is capable. The judge of the earth is the one who does what is right. But He also shows us that He is man by His being born at Bethlehem, at which time his human nature began when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. By his physical limitations, we see him hunger and we see him thirst. We see him tired and we see him exhausted. By his mental limitations, that as a child we're told that he grew in wisdom, that he had to learn. He had to learn to read like any child. And when he was a man, he told his disciples that he did not know the day of his return by his death and burial that he was able to die God cannot die this man that dies by his declaration that he came in the flesh John 1:14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory so you see that there are these two natures God and man the human and the divine but one person these two natures we need to understand are distinct from each other. They're not all mixed up with each other. I mean, you can't take them and mix them together so that He is partly human and partly divine. That's not at all what we're talking about here. It's impossible for that to be done. Why is it impossible? Can you see? Can you see why it would be impossible to mix the natures of Christ together and kind of get them all mixed up? It's because the divine nature can't change. By definition, if you're God... You're unchangeable. Remember when we learned that back in question four? It's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So if Jesus was able to change his divine nature, it would not be a divine nature to start with. If it changes, 
It's not divine. If it is converted into something else, like the water that was turned to wine, if Jesus was converted from divine to human, then it can't be divine because it changed. If it's mixed together with something else so that it becomes a new composition, like water when it's added to Portland cement and and gravel and, uh, and sand makes concrete, then it, can, it cannot be divine because something changed its properties from what it was. If it is confused with something else, so that some of the time it is divine and some of the time it's human, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or like a prince that turns into a frog and then back into a prince again when the prince kisses it, then this is also means that it's no longer a divine nature. Because for a time it stopped being what it was and then it went back again. The confession of faith declares in a very clear way how Christ's natures could not be mixed up in any of these ways. It says that in the person, the one person of Christ, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead, the divine nature, and the manhood, the human nature, were joined together in one person. What joins them together is the fact that they are shared by the one eye, the one person. But they are distinct and that each nature is entirely complete in itself and in no way changed into something else by the other nature. Never at any time were the two natures mixed up in any way. They were always united in one person, but they were never mixed up. The divine nature was still governing the universe with all wisdom and power when the human nature was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and came into being. And the divine nature was still giving life and sustaining life to all living creatures when the human nature lay silent in the grave. Yet none of this changes the fact that there was only one person, one person with two natures. We can't understand how one person can have two natures, but that's what is revealed in God's Word. And we can understand the facts of it. We can't fathom or put it all together. But what does it matter? What does it matter that Christ is one person with two natures? It matters very much. This is what makes Him qualified to be the Redeemer of God's elect. No one else has what it takes to do the job. The two natures are absolutely necessary for Him to be our Redeemer. Both natures are required for Him to justify us. Think with me on this. He had to be human if He was going to justify us because He came to be our representative. And to stand before the Father is our representative. But how could He represent us unless He was fully one of us? If He was an angel, He couldn't be our spokesman before God. He could only be the spokesman for angels. Hebrews 2.14 brings this out when it explains that we are partakers of flesh and blood and that we are not spirits like the angels. And then it says that He Himself likewise took part in the same in flesh and blood. 
He became flesh and blood, a full human being like us. And Hebrews 2.17 goes on to tell us the reason that he became like us was to make propitiation for our sins. It says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He couldn't have done it if he had not been 100% human flesh at the same time that he is 100% divine. Remember the word make propitiation? It, it means to appease anger. And in this case, it is to appease, of course, the wrath and anger of God against our sin. Jesus had to be like us, a human, in order to turn away God's anger against human on account of human sins. But did you know, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? He had to be human to represent human, to, re- to justify. But did you know that he also had to be God when he went to the cross if he was going to justify us? He did indeed. If he had only been a man, even if he had been a sinless man, his sacrifice would not have been adequate or sufficient to atone for our sins. We have seen that the punishment for sin is eternal torment in hell, and yet Jesus was only on the cross for a few hours. How could his sacrifice pay for all of his people's sins? The only reason that Jesus' sacrifice was of such value and could atone for all our sin was because He was God's Son who came from heaven. For Him to become flesh and then be cut off by His Father on the cross was equivalent to us spending eternity in hell. It was such a huge thing for the very Son of God, the person who was the Son of God, to be cut off that it atoned for all. Hebrews 9, 11-12 brings this out for us when it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of bull, of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, only the one who is not made with hands, that person was able to offer a sacrifice that was eternal. Hebrews 10 goes on to explain how Jesus came from heaven as God's Son to do the will of God in offering Himself for our sins. This is what we sing in Psalm 40. Hebrews 10.9 Then he said, Behold, I have come, come from heaven, okay, as the Son of God, to do your will, O God. And then in verse 10 he says, but it says, By that will, we, he's come to do God's will, by that will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it is by this sacrifice of the one who came from heaven. See, before he was human flesh, he was divine. He came from heaven, became human flesh. To, to, he came from heaven as God's son to do this. It is by him alone that we're saved. If he had not been the son of God who had come from heaven, 
we would not have a sufficient sacrifice. He had to be God and man. So from that, you can see that Jesus had to be both God and man to represent us before the Father and atone for our sins that He might justify us. I want you to see further that both natures are required if He is to impart life to us. First of all, He had to be God if He was going to impart life to us. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? See, with the other one, that we let it justify us, it totally makes sense He had to be man to represent us. So we started with that. Then we saw, but He also had to be God because sacrifice and all that He did wouldn't be worthy of, of, of salvation. But now, giving life to us, well, well, obviously a human can't give life to you. You've got to, have, you've got to be God to do that. So it, that He might be capable of imparting spiritual life to us when we were dead, making us alive. Only God. As God, He had the authority to speak spiritual life into us just as He had authority to speak the world into being. So in John 5, verse 20, it says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. Now, I tell you, in that passage, John 5, 20-21, that's talking about spiritual life for those that are dead in sin. It's not talking about physical resurrection there. John 5 does talk about physical resurrection as well, but here it's talking about death from death in sin to life, eternal life with God. Jesus is talking about imparting that. This becomes very clear as He continues in verse 24. He says... Most assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. How do they obtain that? By believing in faith. Okay? He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, he says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. If Jesus were not God, His Word would not be able to bring us to spiritual life. Giving life is a divine act, be it physical life or spiritual life, but especially the giving of spiritual life. And Jesus is able to do this because He is God. He had the power and authority to do it because He is God. So much of His ministry demonstrates this. For example, He casts out demons. The power of God. He's speaking a word and healing people. Giving them sight. power of God. Raising people from the grave. power of God. Baptizing with us, us with the Holy Spirit. As one that is mightier than John, power of God, speaking forgiveness of sins. And this has to do with imparting life by divine power as well. In all these ways, Jesus represents God in bringing divine life to us. But did you know that he also had to be man if he was going to impart life? Say, well, how so? God can impart life. He certainly did have to be God in order to impart life to the dead. 
But he also had to be a person who was human. He had to be a man in order that he might give us life by union with his human body. It was not his divine, but his human nature that was spirit filled. When we're baptized by the spirit, we are also joined as one to his body, his human body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He is the vine and we are the branches. And if there is no human vine, as John 15 and Romans 11 speak of, a vine, we could not be joined to him for life in the Holy Spirit. We could not, we, we could not die with him to sin, nor could we, we be raised with him to eternal life unless he was human. So Romans 6 speaks of that at length. So you see, he had to be God and man to impart life to us. The point before that, he had to be God and man to justify us, or man and God to, to, to justify us. Okay, and there are other benefits that come from him being both God and man. That he can sympathize with us. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has been through deeper suffering, deeper rejection, deeper loss, deeper heartache, deeper temptation, all of it, than you will ever, ever know. Not even close. It's It's a terrible insult to say to Jesus that He does not know what you're going through. He's been through much worse than you will ever go through in any way whatsoever. Rest assured, He knows. Nobody else may know, but He knows that He can more effectively communicate with us. Another benefit of Him being both God and man. Remember Mount Sinai? God spoke to them with a glorious manifestation of Himself. And people were so terrified. What did they do? They begged, don't talk to us. Don't talk to us like that ever again. And God said, it's a good thing you said that. You're right. He said, we'll die if you talk to us like that. God said, I'll send you a prophet like Moses. I'll, I'll send people to talk to you for me. But He sent God, His Son, God the Son from heaven in human flesh to talk. We actually have God in human flesh speaking to us. Hebrews 1.3 draws that out. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son through whom He made the worlds. He became flesh and dwelt among us. It says in 1 John, we beheld His glory. He's called the Logos, the Word made flesh. The Word that speaks and reveals God to us in a way that that we can understand, not, you know, we can't even see God. We, can't, we couldn't even perceive Him unless He condescends. And now He has actually come in flesh and speaks to us. And then he, that He is God and man, that He is better suited to be our judge at the last day. When He comes in His glory at the last day, it will be glorious human form that every person will see. You can't see the divine form. It's, it's too immense. There's no, there's no physical presence or being. He will come glorified man 
to bring judgment. And Revelation says, 1-7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. So as the one who is both God and man, He will speak plainly so that all will see their sin in that day. No one will go, oh, now I wonder if I came short. There will be no doubt about it for anyone, either the wicked or the righteous. All will know that the wicked are justly condemned, including the wicked. And all will know that the redeemed are saved only through the merit of Christ, not at all through their own merit. It will all be clear on that day of judgment because the revelation will be through Christ who is among us. So I hope that now you can see why only Jesus could be the Redeemer. God and man. We couldn't have another Redeemer without both natures, the human nature and the divine nature. God chose him and prepared a body for him in order that we might be saved. He alone is equipped to be our Redeemer. No one else is qualified. No one else is God and man. Two distinct natures with one person. Let us worship him. Let us give thanks to him. Let us entrust our lives completely to him into his hands for our salvation. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. O Lord God, how thankful we are to come before you in prayer and to thank you for all that you have done for us. We praise you that your son, that you sent your only son, and that he came here, that he became flesh and dwelt among us, and that we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We thank you that he dwelt among us and that he showed that he was God and he also showed that he was man at the same time. We thank you that he is able to be a true priest to us who represents us and yet who makes eternal atonement for us in the tabernacle that's made without hands, the one that is eternal in the heavens. We thank you that even now, didn't even speak about this, but as he is there at your right hand to intercede for us, it is again as both God and man. We thank you that he is there as our representative leading us before the throne of grace. And at the same time, he is there as the very son of God, that as he can receive all of our prayers. And at the same time, he is there as one who is like us. Father, we pray that you would help us to rejoice and to delight in having such a savior and that we would realize his uniqueness and that we would never ever insult him by suggesting that there could be some other way of salvation. Father, it is a hard truth, and it's one that's not popular. It never has been popular. It's always seemed to people that it was unreasonable or unfair that salvation was confined basically to the nation of Israel for all those years. But Lord, when we consider that the reason that this was so is because everyone from Noah knew the way of truth, and they rejected it. And it was in your great mercy that you came 
even already having come in mercy to Noah and his family. Then you came to them over the years. You came to one nation and singled them out. No one deserved to have you come at all. And we thank you, Lord, that you then, though, had plans and purposes that that salvation would again spread into all the world in your great mercy and grace. And we pray that we would not be so proud as to think that it was somehow unjust that for those years you passed over the other nations. For Lord, who could say that we in any way deserved to have the Son of God come and become flesh and die on the cross for us? No one could say that. We thank you then, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal your majesty and glory in this way. We know that without revelation like that, we would never, we, we, have, we, we have a hard enough time accepting it anyway, that uh, we don't deserve it and never did deserve it. And Father, we know that the way you have revealed it is, is the way that is good and that you chose. And we pray, Lord, that we would not have bitterness or have questioning of how you have done things. We think that we would have a better way, Lord, but we're the ones who have ruined the whole world by our sin. What do we have to say about it? We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken and that you've spoken clearly. Father, we pray that we would make the glorious news known that there is salvation in Jesus Christ and in no other, and that we would have a zeal for this as the only truth, that we would want to see missionaries and pray that they would go and pay for them to go to uh, labor in other lands. We thank you for uh, Tom Van Menen and Sandra and our, Tom and Sandra Van Menen and our own uh, presbytery here, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, that you would bless them, Lord, as they continue to work in Malawi. We also pray for um, for Randy Lewin, a student of ministry that is is thinking of going into missions as well. We pray, Lord, that, that great work would be done through these men. And we pray that you would raise up others. We thank you for missionaries all over the world that have gone forth to proclaim the one and only Savior. Father, thank you for the redemption that is so full and complete, for the comfort and assurance that we have in him. And we know, Lord, that even as we abide in him as the vine, as we're one with him as our head, as we share the Spirit with Him, Father, that truly we have the consolation of the Holy Spirit that gives us that sweet assurance that we do belong to You. And without that, Lord, we would never serve You. We thank You, Lord, for how essential that is. And we pray that our our faith would be stronger day by day and that we would go forth with great confidence in the relationship that we have with You. And that we would have such confidence that we pour our lives out for you and for others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.